0: Well, what is heaven like? What is there to expect in the afterlife? If someone were to ask you that question, what would you say? How would you answer? Last time that I preached, I shared on the topic of the keys to endurance. How can we endure trial? What is to be our focus as we're trying to endure? One of the things that became apparent as we looked at Hebrews 12 1 through 3 was that the testimony of the faithful is that they often considered the end of their journey as a means of encouragement for pressing on. It was the glorious end, along with this reward for faithful service, which God gave as a motivation to the faithful, from the first of the faithful even to the greatest, Jesus himself, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Last Sunday, we considered the importance of walking in wisdom, redeeming our time. We have a finite amount of time. This time has been predetermined, and once it's up, that's it. You really only live once. There's no do-over. There are no second or third lives. This is it, and how you spend your life today will impact eternity. So then, contrary to popular opinion, considering the end becomes much more important than the here and now, some have said that Christians can be too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good, But to the contrary, in order to be any earthly good, you have to be heavenly minded. Again, what is heaven like? What will happen after you breathe your last breath on this side of eternity? The world has a number of different concepts of the end, the afterlife, ranging from emptiness to various degrees of bliss or torment, even numerous concepts of reincarnation. Of course, we'll have the occasional testimony of someone who's died, gone to heaven and come back just in time to get a book deal or a movie. Biblically, for the believer, the expectation of the afterlife should be one of hope. It is, in fact, to be something that the believer considers often. Throughout the testimony of the New Testament concerning the work of salvation, three characteristics are repeatedly used to describe believers, faith, hope, and love. We know what faith is all about. You have to believe. You have to trust. As a believer, you believe and keep believing throughout the course of your life, We know what love is all about. Jesus said that they would be known, we would be known by our love for one another. But we don't often give the same emphasis on hope. And when we talk about hope, we talk about it in worldly terms. Hope is often relegated to wishful thinking. I hope I get that job. I hope that person likes me. I hope I get better from this sickness. I really want it to happen, but I'm not entirely sure it will. I hope it does. But that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation grounded in the promises of God. One of the best descriptions of biblical hope, I think, is found in 1 Thessalonians 9.10. Paul is describing the character of believers who had heard the gospel in one of Paul's missionary journeys. Persecution broke out against Paul and his companions. They had to leave shortly after having preached the gospel. Paul was concerned about what happened to that dear church. So he sends Timothy back to figure out what's going on there. And when he gets back there, he hears about this amazing testimony of these dear saints in whom God has worked mightily. The testimony was this. He says, they themselves report what kind of uh, report concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That, by the way, is a perfect picture of repentance. Repentance is turning from one thing to another. Here he says they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. He says, we, we, we heard this report from the surrounding areas, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In other words, what was outstanding about the character of these believers is that one, they were repentant. They turned away from their sin to the living God. And two, they were anxiously waiting for the return of Jesus. They just heard the gospel. They they didn't have a class on systematic theology or on eschatology. They just heard the simple truths of the gospel. They turned from idols. And they turned to heaven to look forward to Jesus' return. We are waiting for Jesus to come. The true and living God testified to his authenticity by raising from the dead. That proves all of what he has said, and he has a promise to deliver us from the wrath to come. Another good description of our hope is found in 2 Peter 3.13. Peter says, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This heaven and earth is not characterized by righteousness, quite the contrary. But God has promised that someday soon there will be a heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells that's what we're looking forward to in other words again biblical hope is not wishful thinking it's the confident expectation grounded in the promises of God God has said it we believe it he is faithful therefore we believe it'll happen and we look forward to it the writer of Hebrews says that the promise of God is like an anchor of our soul he says that in Hebrews 6 13 through 19 It's an anchor in the midst of turbulent trials. It's an anchor in the midst of persecution. It's an anchor in the midst of temptation. It's an anchor in the midst of sickness and death. That God has promised us eternal life, that He's promised us a place in which righteousness dwells, and we ought to be looking forward to that. Well, again, what is heaven like? Do you believe or consider that often? Are you looking forward to that day? Have you often sought out what it means, what it's going to look like when we get to heaven? Do you think about that truth, the promise of heaven, as an anchor for your soul? Do you pull that truth from the recesses of your heart and hold on to it in your times of trouble? Biblically, heaven is not one thing. What we call heaven is really the sum total of all of God's promises fulfilled. It's the hope of all things new. Um, We're going to look at that in Revelation chapter 21. If you haven't turned there, go ahead. Revelation 21, we'll look at, in particular, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read this morning verses 1 through 8 for context. Revelation 21, 1 through through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And he said, write this down, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let us pray. Our Father, again, we come before you and thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word, which is true, which sanctifies us. Thank you for the hope of heaven here envisioned in John's apocalypse. Father, do instruct our hearts. Do comfort and encourage our hearts. Again, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Well, again, what is heaven like? Heaven is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. It's the hope of all things new. We'll see this hope of God's promises clearly in these first five verses. In verse 1, we'll see a new heavens and a new earth. In verse 2, we'll see a new Jerusalem. And in verses 3 through 5, we'll get a glimpse of our new relationship with God. So three things, new heavens and new earth, new Jerusalem, and our new relationship with God. Let's look at that first point, that according to God's promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth. I'll read verse 1 again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. One thing that is unmistakable in reading the book of Revelation is that its author, John, the apostle, intended for it to be understood as a testimony. His firsthand testimony is some previously undisclosed revelations given to him by God. He says in verse 1, then I saw. And in verse 2, and I saw. And in verse 3, and I heard. These are repeated throughout the book of John, or Revelation. John wants to make clear that these are visions that he was given by God In order to be communicated to the people of God for her good. He also makes the same testimony in chapter one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. In verse 11, we see Jesus himself appearing to John while on the aisle at Patma saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And again, in verse 19, write, therefore, what you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. John was given revelation. He was given a clear image, a picture into what was going to happen. He was told to write it and to share it to the churches for her edification The Bible is often characterized as a mystical, holy book filled with nonsense, things too difficult to understand. Certainly in the Revelation, there are some things difficult to understand. But it's characterized as things drummed up by the imagination of man, things outdated, antiquated, things we have no reason to believe are true. And yet the testimony of those who wrote the text of Scripture is this. These are things that I have seen and heard that I'm testifying to. These are things that God has given to me. God has showed me for your sake. And they write those things down for us to see and hear and understand. These are eyewitness testimonies. As we come to the end of the vision here in Revelation 21, the first thing that John sees again is a new heaven and a new earth. Well, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth on the account of sin the sin of humanity, all creation, was subjected to the effects of the fall. God cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. Romans 8 paints a picture of the whole creation groaning under the effects of the fall, waiting until it is renewed. Revel- uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 19, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suge- because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The picture here is of creation itself in the throes of childbirth, creation groaning, all of the disaster and the turmoil that we see within creation, uh, the, the upheaval, the unrest that we see within the created order, is all as a result of it being cursed due to the sin of man. And so creation itself is here pictured as anxiously longing for the day when it will be set free from that corruption. And that day is going to come when we're set free from that corruption. Well, what does this renewal, this setting free of corruption, involve? How will it be renewed? Peter gives us an idea in 2 Peter chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there with me just for a moment. Second Peter chapter 3. Peter is also giving us a glimpse into what's going to happen in the end. Peter says in Second chap- Peter chapter three verse one, "This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm, st- I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder." That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Verse 3. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? So the believer, what is characteristic of a believer, what we talked about from First Thessalonians 9 and 10. It is characteristic of a believer. A person who is, has genuine faith in Christ is going to be looking forward for the return of Jesus a person who doesn't believe, they're going to think that's a joke. They're going to make fun of it. They're going to poke fun at us for believing that Jesus is going to return. Where is the promise of his coming? They say, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He says they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That is in the beginning. He's talking, referring back to creation. And that by means of these, the world that existed then was deluged with water and perished. So he's talking about the flood during Noah's time. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So God has judged the whole world once. He's going to judge the whole world again. The first time he judged the whole world, he used water, the same water that he used to create the next time he judges the world, it's going to be with fire. He says, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that the, with one day, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And then he goes on from there. So he talks about the mockery from the ungodly, from the unbelievers. He talks about the fact that things have continued in this way. And God has allowed people to continue mocking because he wants to give time for repentance. God in his grace and his mercy has not destroyed the world yet because he's given time for people to repent and to come to faith in Christ. But he will destroy the world. And when he comes back to destroy the world, to judge the world for the second time, he's going to do it with fire. But again, we're looking forward to that new heavens and that new earth according to his promise. Well, where again does that promise come from? We already looked at Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. Isaiah speaks on behalf of God, saying in verse 17 of that passage, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. For the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. The new heavens and new earth was promised long ago through Isaiah to the people of God for their encouragement. God desired to encourage those of his day again who were suffering from the effects of God's judgment and exile. They didn't see the fulfillment of their day. We're awaiting that fulfillment still. Back to our passage in Revelation 21.1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Again, what is heaven like? Well, heaven will involve the dissolving of the first heaven and earth and the creation of a new heaven and earth. There is debate as to whether it will be completely new creation or simply a renovation. I tend to think, based on the passages we've just reviewed, that the whole cosmos as it currently stands will be set ablaze, that these fires will make for our purification and cleansing, and that what remains God will remake and fashion into a new heaven and new earth, a new creation for his people to dwell in. It will be qualitatively new and better than what currently is. There will no longer remain the effects of the fall. No longer will creation groan under the curse. It will be free and it will be new. The present heavens and earth will be destroyed. And there will be something new left for us. Now some, and I think even some believers have been drawn into this, have made a new kind of uh, form of religion out of worshiping creation. And perhaps everyone wouldn't take it that far or say that, but they become enraptured in a quest to save the planet, to stop global warming, to stop big business because it's killing the planet. We've all seen the documentaries and movies. We've heard the politicians and activists. I mean, there was a a story out maybe a a few weeks ago about um, Union Theological Seminary, how they set up a service. And in their service, they had plants up on a platform And there were people gathered around the plants confessing their sin to the plants. Confessing their sin to the earth. Because they'd harmed it, they'd wronged it. Certainly we must be good stewards of the earth, right? But more than that, there is a picture painted by this same group that the earth as a planet is the most important thing. That animals, that the created order is the most important thing. That really humanity is the curse, in their worldview, which is not a biblical worldview, the planet, nature, would be better off without us. It was not made for us. We were made from it, you know, Mother Earth. And um, we are subservient to it. Our allegiance must be to it. And we have to take care because if we don't take care, then we're going to completely destroy the earth. I like this quote from John MacArthur as he was preaching from Second Peter chapter 3. He refers back to God's promise in Genesis 8 concerning the earth. Here's his quote. He says, listen to this. This is God's promise. While the earth remains. Did you read that? He says, or as long as the earth remains. He says, and who determines that? God. As long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day, night shall not cease. That's a great promise, isn't it? Yeah. We're not going to kill the planet. This is a divine promise. This planet is here for man to use. And as long as it is here, God will sustain it for our use. And our good and our joy and our praise to him, he says. He says, so don't worry about it. As Rick says, and I don't know who Rick is, but I like Rick. He says, as Rick says, step on the grass, shoot a deer, drill for oil. We're all good. End quote. In other words, we can't thwart God's promises for the earth, for this planet. This planet will remain as long as God so intends and he's already told us what's going to happen when the planet, as it stands, it has fulfilled its purposes. He, God, will destroy it by fire. He, God, will create a new heavens, a new earth. Again, step on the grass, shoot a deer, drill for oil, make use of the planet in whatever way we see fit to exercise dominion. God will take care of it until the end. Now, before we move on to the next point in verse 1, the text also says, and there was no longer any sea. Why? There's a lot of speculation as to why there's no longer any sea in the new heavens and earth. There are a number of good options as to the explanation. The most reasonable to me seems to hint at what the sea represented. In antiquity, the sea represented the unknown, that which is unfathomable. It is a covering over things which people, into which people could be forever lost. It represented a great threat to mankind, particularly in poetic literature, the nations, and really any major trouble was compared to the sea. Uh, washing over them. Well, this will have no part in the new heavens and new earth. There will be no further need for the earth to have a covering for its deep places. There will no longer be any sense of dread or threat for God's people and for her existence. According to God's promise, again, we're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth. Let's look at that second point, verse 2. According to God's promise, we're looking for a new Jerusalem. He says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Again, what is heaven like? Heaven is the hope of all things new. It's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. In verse 1, we saw the fulfillment of God's promises to create a new heavens and new earth. Here we see the focus narrowing more to the people of God themselves. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem. One of the questions that arises in this section is whether there's going to be an actual city called New Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth. Or whether they're just using Jerusalem here as a metaphor for the people of God symbolically. Is there a city or is it God's people? What complicates it a bit further is that in verse 10, the text says that John was carried away in the spirit. As one of the angels says, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Typically, when we talk about the bride, the wife of the lamb, we're talking about the church. Here it says, John is taken away and shown what is described then as the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So he says, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, and then he takes him to the city and describes it in very great detail. In other words, many people take this to mean that John is seeing a poetic representation of the church, the gathering of God's people in the eternal state. And others will look at that section going from verse 10 and beyond as a description of an actual city. So which one is it? Well, I think this text has echoes of Isaiah 65 as well, and we have to understand that to move forward. He says again in the text, be glad, in verse in chapter 65 of Isaiah, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. The section in Isaiah's prophecy is poetic in nature. Most prophecy has that, that quality. That it is poetic means that those lines are in parallel. In other words, when the text says, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness, those two parts are saying the same thing, not two separate things. Jerusalem is equated with the people and joy is equated with gladness. The point is that Jerusalem is so identified with her people and likewise the people are so identified with the city that they're used interchangeably. Jerusalem is the city. Jerusalem is the people. There's no sharp, sharp dichotomy. It's not either or it's both. I believe that's the key to understanding what God, John is seeing in our text. There will be a city and the city in all of its splendor is representative of the people of God whom he's prepared the city for. Now, the significance of John's description back in Revelation 21 is twofold. First, it is called the holy city. Jerusalem is referred to as the holy city in the Old Testament, but the significance of the term here is qualified by the repetition of the term new. It's not just the holy city. It's not the same old Jerusalem. This is a new Jerusalem. It is a holy city, but not the same one as before. It is something new. It's holy, meaning that God has made purification for her sins. Jerusalem as a city is often referred to in negative terms due to her sins. And yet here she's called the holy city. She's been cleansed from her sin, and by extension, so have her people. As we've thought through what God is doing in our salvation, as we've gone through the book of Ephesians, one thing is unmistakable. God will bring our salvation to its fullness. He will complete our redemption. That is part of his promise. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 is a promise that we will stand before God holy and without blame. We will be fully redeemed from the power of sin and the presence of sin. That will happen. That day will happen because God has promised it to be so. We will be holy. And God has prepared an equally holy place for make our, to make our abode for all eternity. This is ultimately the place where Jesus says he was preparing for us in John 14. This is the place that the writer of Hebrews refers to in Hebrews Hebrews 11 verses 10 and 16, whose architect and builder is God, the place that the faithful looked for. And this is a place, again, that we already mentioned um, from the book of Peter, is that place in which righteousness dwells, the place that God is preparing for his people. The second point of significance of John's description of the new Jerusalem is that it is something that God has prepared. The city, as seen Coming down out of heaven from God. God is sending this city down. And it is, he says, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. It's unmistakable. God has done this. He has done this to make us ready for the wedding. The wedding that we will see envisioned in the next few verses when God finally and fully dwells with his people. This is the work of God to complete the work of sanctification. Of holiness that he began. We were first made partakers of eternal life. The day is coming when we will no longer wage war against the flesh. The day is coming when we will no longer need to wage war against sin. We will no longer have those stray wicked thoughts and impulses that lead us to shame. We will no longer have to deal with the sin of others, the sin of our brothers. We will no longer have conflicts with one another for which we need to ask for forgiveness. We will be finally and fully be freed from sin. That day is coming. I love a line from a a song by Chris Rice. The song is entitled Prone to Wander. And if you can imagine, he's singing about the fact that he feels in his heart, he's confessing in his heart that he's prone to wander from the Lord. And there's a sweet line there. As he's coming to the climax of the song, he states, freedom from myself will be the sweetest rest I've ever known. Because he feels the burden of his own sin. You ever feel that? You ever feel the burden of your own sin? I know sometimes we feel sick. We get sick and tired of other people's sin, right? And it's very easy to spot sin in other people. But I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I just get sick and tired of my own foolishness. I get sick and tired of my own wicked thoughts. I get sick and tired of my own wicked, selfish impulses. And I just want for it to be over. And I know that day is coming, and I look forward to it with all my heart. Freedom for myself will be the sweetest rest I've ever known. John envisions that time in first John chapter three, he says, We will be like him. Amen. Those are beautiful words. God's gonna do this. All of his promises concerning our redemption, our full redemption from sin, will be brought to fruition on that day, the day we get to heaven. Again, what is heaven like? Heaven is the hope of all things new. Heaven is the place, the time, the day when all of God's promises will be fulfilled. He will create a new heavens, a new earth. He will create a new Jerusalem, a holy city. And he will complete the holiness that he's begun in his people. Third point. We'll also have a new relationship with him. Look again at verses three through five. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, These verses are a representation of that final blessed union, a summary of the fullness of our relationship with God. They represent a new era in the way that God relates with his people. All of what God promised up until this point has led us to this. Again, in the beginning, God walked with man. He talked with man. He enjoyed a special communion with man, walking in the cool of the day, giving man unfettered access to him. Then comes Genesis 3. The sin of humanity is... Creates a division between us and God. No longer do we have that same access to him, but there are boundaries, lines that we could never cross. However, on that very day, God made a promise. In Genesis 3.15, he says that the seed of the woman will come to crush the head of the serpent. The catalyst of that separation, the catalyst of our fall into sin. He's going to crush the head of the serpent and bring that renewal. And we've been looking forward to that day ever since. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we see God beginning to set apart a family, Abraham and his descendants. And he says that through this family, not only would Abraham and his descendants be blessed, but all the families of the earth, every tribe and tongue and nation will be blessed through this one group, through this family whom God is setting apart. And we see the progress and growth of Abraham's family through the rest of the Old Testament. Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. How God preserved them, set them apart, dwelt among them for a season, gave them the law to make them holy as a nation, set them apart. He gave them sacrifices to satisfy his wrath for a season. God preserved them and protected them through the ages, giving the world through them a glimpse of what it means when God dwells among people. And yet it was an imperfect image because the people were not perfect. They struggled Continuing to look forward to the day when God would make all things new, when God would circumcise their hearts, when he would write his law upon their hearts, sprinkle their hearts with pure water. And then comes Jesus through the line of that same family, born of a woman, that Genesis 315 seed, the one who would keep the law of God given to his people to please him in every way, the one who would serve as a perfect sacrifice to completely take away the sin of his people, the one who would bring together people from every tribe and tongue and nation, every family of the earth, into one new man, one new group. It is this group of people made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus, this group of people adorned by the spirit of Christ and God, this group of people for whom the new heavens and new earth are made. For whom this new Jerusalem is made, it is this group of people who are made ready to dwell with God for eternity. This will be a new kind of relationship. Listen again to the voice that calls out from the throne. Perhaps it's just an angel, some sort of herald. Perhaps it is God himself. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be their God. Again, the promise of Genesis 3.15 fulfilled, the reversal of the effects of the fall fulfilled, God once again dwelling among his people, giving them unfettered access to his presence. A classical definition of heaven in theology is very simple. It's the place where God dwells. Any concept of heaven that removes God from the picture or that does not see God in all of his glory as a centerpiece of heaven is misguided at best and heretical at worst. God in his glory is such the focal point of this new creation that scripture says that his glory will be the light of it. It repeats this truth twice. In chapter 21, verses 22 through 25, he says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. He says, and there will be no night there. In chapter 22, verse 5, he says it again. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or the sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Just as in our solar system, the sun and moon are the primary sources of light, without which we would be in utter darkness perpetually. So God occupies that central role as a source of all light in his new created order. There is no heaven apart from God's immediate presence in all of his glory. We can't miss this. So many pictures of heaven are a place of rest. Certainly that is true. So many places of heaven are a a place of joy. That's true. A place where we're reunited with loved ones past. That's certainly true. But only those things would completely miss the point of heaven. The point of heaven, the the centerpiece of heaven, uh, the heart of heaven, is that it is a place where God dwells. And it is a place where he gives unfettered, complete access to his people, to his face forever. That's the heaven that we await. He goes on in the description of the city. We see here in the end that it is the place where God dwells. And again, it's a place where we will be also. In the Old Testament, a little bit more Old Testament background, the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary and the temple, the place where God's presence was manifested was only accessible on one day of the year by one person chosen by Lot on the day of atonement. But in heaven, that's going to be no more. Those boundaries are going to be completely wiped away. We'll have, we'll have no boundaries between us and God. We'll see his face. We'll walk with him in the cool of the day once more for all eternity. But there's more to this relationship. Look again at verse 4. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, I didn't grow up with a father in the home. My father was not there. But being a father now, I can't imagine being apart from my children as they grow. I can't imagine what it's like not having the privilege of seeing them grow. One of the greatest privileges of being a father is having the opportunity to wipe the tears away from the eyes of my children. These tears come at different times, a bad dream, some sort of failure, someone else's sin against them, a sad situation, poor health. Sometimes I'm the reason why they're crying. Some correction that I have to bring in their life. But no matter what the reason or the source of their tears, it is a joy for me to be able to reach up with my hands and wipe their tears away, to be able to provide some kind of comfort to them. That's the joy of a father. And this, I believe, will be the joy of our Heavenly Father when we get to heaven. Everything that could possibly bring us tears, death, anything that causes mourning, crying, or pain will all be done away with. Sin will no longer reign, it will no longer cause separation, it will no longer cause difficulty or trial. The former things will have passed away. What causes you pain today? Have you lost someone, felt the sting of death or separation? Do you struggle with your health? Do you struggle with conflicts and relationships with those dear to you? What causes mourning in your life today? What brings you to tears? The reality is on this side of eternity, we will face those things. They will come. Again, as a father, I wish that I didn't have to wipe tears away from my children's eyes, but I can't protect them from that. That is the life that we live here today. But there is coming a day when all of that will be done away with. When all of what causes us pain, all of what causes us mourning, all of what causes us distress, will be removed. God is going to do that. Every tear that we've ever cried, he's going to use his hands to wipe them away. Forever. I said earlier that these things were written, recorded by John as a testimony of God's faithfulness. It was recorded for our encouragement, for our hope. Again, biblical hope is a confident expectation grounded in the promises of God. Look again at verse 5. It says, and he who was seated on the throne, this time we know for certain that God is hearing the voice of God. John is hearing the voice of God. He who was seated on the throne said this, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. God said, I am going to do this. It is going to happen. You can trust that. You can count on that. Again, what is heaven like? Heaven is the hope, the confident expectation, the anxious longing that believers have for the day when God fulfills all of his promises. The day that God makes all things new a new heavens and earth, a new holy city, his people fully redeemed in holiness, a new relationship with him where we exist with him in perfect harmony, having unfettered access to his presence as our kind and gentle heavenly father who will forever wipe away our tears. That is heaven. That is our hope, beloved. These truths we have been left to serve as an anchor for our souls in the midst of whatever we endure on this side of eternity. A word of caution. Because the one who sits on the throne. Continued speaking beyond verse 5. And he still speaks. Look again at Revelation 21. We're going to read a little further here. He says in verse 6 again. And he said to me it is done. Nothing unclean will enter it, enter in the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Look at chapter 22, verse 7. He says, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. He says, I am John who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down and worshipped at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share from the tree of life and the holy city we're to describe in this book. He who testifies to these things, says surely i am coming soon amen, amen. come lord jesus amen. peter asked this question in second peter three since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness now this is a word of caution for the church john says it this way in first john the world and its lusts are passing but the one who does the will of god abides forever And he says, the one who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. How shall we live now since we know that these things are going to happen? How shall we who have hope of heaven, secured by Jesus, live knowing that he is coming quickly? I'd ask you, how are you living? Are you, believer, living in light of the holiness of heaven that will characterize your eternal existence? Knowing that this world and its lesser passing, do you indulge or flee? Are you serving as one who is steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain? Are you exhorting one another to hold fast to the anchor of God's promises, not for your best life now, but for the better life that is to come? You have need of an enduring faith so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what was promised. He who is promised is faithful and he is coming. A word of caution to those who do not know that they are in the faith. Maybe you've never trusted in Christ or you're just not sure. Jesus lived and died to give us the hope of heaven. The sacrifice of his life is really what makes us ready to be a part of this this promise of heaven. We sing that song that Christ is our sure and steady anchor precisely because he is the one who gives us the assurance of heaven. Scripture says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is his life, his death, his resurrection that secures our hope of heaven. In the verses we covered this morning, there's no mention of those who have not believed in Christ. That's because they were already dealt with in the preceding chapters of Revelation. When God's judgment is poured out on the world, and especially in chapter 20, read that for yourself. There is a place where all things that do not belong in the new heavens and new earth are discarded. It is there described as the second death, the lake of fire. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you have no hope of the joy of heaven. But your portion will be with those who burn in the lake of fire and sulfur in the second death for all eternity. That's where you're going, apart from Christ. Nevertheless, as I read from the end of chapter 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come again. Our Lord is coming quickly and he will give to those according to what they have done. Come to faith in Jesus today. You can talk to me or any one of the other believers here if you want to learn more about that. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for our time together. And we thank you for this meditation on heaven, the hope of all things new. We thank you for your promise that we will have a new heavens and a new earth. We thank you for your promise that there will be a new Jerusalem, a new city for your people to dwell, and that you will finally and fully clothe them in your holiness, your righteousness, never to struggle with sin again. There is coming a day when we will no longer struggle with the effects of sin when we won't have to face separation from you, when we will have complete and total access to your face, we'll be able to see you. We'll be able to walk with you. We'll enjoy your presence for all eternity. When you will finally remove the effects of sin again, death, mourning, crying, tears, pain, you'll remove them from us. We'll never see them ever again. We'll never experience them ever again. You'll finally wipe away every tear from our eyes as a good and gentle and kind heavenly father that you are. Thank you for this promise. Help us to hold fast to this promise and to our confession. Help us to encourage and exhort one another to do the same. We pray this all in Christ's name.